You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in season three? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. And the all-new Beauty Translated love line at... 678-561-2785. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Bruce Bozzi. On the last season of Table for Two, we had some good times with some of the best guests you could possibly ask for. Table for Two is a bit different from other interview shows. We sit down at a great restaurant for a meal, and the stories start flowing. We're back for a second season. We'll be breaking bread with Colin Jost, Michael Mann, Divine Joy Randolph, just to name a few. Listen and subscribe to Table for Two on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. everybody happy thursday we have an amazing show for everybody today what do we have crystal indeed we do lots of big things going on in all corners of the world we have uh, some big federal reserve decisions what does it mean for now what does it mean for the future and also some new rankings about just how poorly the u.s fares in terms of rights for workers no big surprise there um also some new developments with regard to ukraine a lot of pressure being brought to bear on the biden administration to lay out a specific path and timeline for ukraine to enter nato doesn't seem like a great idea to me, but we'll talk about it. Um, also, some new developments on the third-party front, both some polling and also Cornell West is switching to the Green Party, and the White House is looking to block a potential no-labels bid. Um, excited to bring back the panel. It's back. Long-awaited. Going to be in studio. We've got two great guests. Super excited to talk to them. One who is all in for Trump, one who is all in for DeSantis. We will respectfully hear their views and what they have hear to it say. Out. We'll air it for the you. audience. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but before we get to any of that. Thank you guys so much for the incredible comments and your excitement and enthusiasm about our new home here. Um, we're still working everything out to make sure the shots are perfect and it looks exactly the way that we want to. But I have to say, I, looking, watching back at some of the show, like 
it looks amazing. Oh, it looks amazing. <laughs> it's already been uh, such a massive improvement. We're doing a little tinkering here and there. Everyone's yeah. having a lot Just of fun with a the little bit. camera angles, as you can see, where to look, what to do, how to dial the lights. Uh, and that's kind of the fun part of all of this is that this is a completely built studio by you guys. You know, our premium subscribers, you helped us out. We have a very small team relative to the hundreds of people who work on these over at the mainstream media. But uh, luckily for us, uh, that's the way we prefer it. So breakingpoints.com, if you're able, you can help us out with our expansion and continue all that. Also, uh, we've got our great new merch shelf on YouTube for our YouTube viewers. It should be right there um, below all of our videos. Everything that we sell is made in the USA and in a union shop, which we're very, very proud of. So anyway, take a look. Uh, we got it. It's all been beautifully designed, our beautiful new logos, which you can see everywhere. I'm told the bucket hat is uh, selling very well. Is much it for to our real? consternation, Crystal. Uh, I did wear a bucket okay. hat. I was in uh, Lake <laughs> Travis in Austin over the weekend, and I gotta be honest, you know, 100 degree heat, and you're in the middle of the lake, it's, it, 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 does, it does have a function. It does okay. have a use. So right. I did wear the bucket hat, you know, even though I've crapped all over it here um, <laughs> on breaking points. I was like, hey, you know, look, it works. It works. All right, let's talk about the Fed. Can't argue yeah. with results there. Can't. You can't. All right, so let's talk about a big decision taken from the Fed. Uh, yesterday, they decided to hold interest rates where they are, but there was a bit of a surprise in their announcement. Let's put this up on the screen. So they're going to hold rates steady for now, but... They say two more are likely coming later this year. Let me read you a little bit of this. Uh, the market's apparently surprised a bit by the expectation of more rate increases. There's a quote here in the CNBC article uh, from some trader analyst dude who says people expected a hawkish pause and they got a very hawkish pause. Given the strong labor market, the Fed has room to crush inflation and they don't want to miss their chance. Go ahead and put the next piece up on the screen. Um, this is part of what informed their decision making. So we got new numbers with regard to inflation rose at a 4% annual rate in May. That is the lowest in two years. So the top line number there looks pretty good. You dig into the numbers, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. Part of what uh, led to this slackening, I guess, slowing of the pace of inflation was a decrease in uh, energy costs. But you still have significant increases in terms of housing that actually made up uh, about one third of the index's weighting. You had a 0.6% increase in shelter prices. That was the biggest contributor to the increase for the all items. Elsewhere, where there was significant inflation, you had used vehicle prices that increased 4.4%. Transportation services were up 0.8%. There was a little bit, Sagar, of good news in this report for workers, which is for most workers, their wages have not been keeping up with mm. inflation. There are, you know, it's like a little bit mixed down at the lowest end of the spectrum. They actually have been keeping up with inflation. This was the first time that overall you had average hourly earnings adjusted for inflation rising 0.3% on the month and on an annual basis, real earnings up 0.2% after running negative for much of the inflation surge that began about two years ago. So why does all of this matter in the context of the Fed? They obviously are raising rates because they think that's going to be the solution for inflation. Uh, it hasn't worked all that well to this point for reasons we've discussed. Greedflation, supply chain issues, these are all things that the Fed can't really deal with. But if inflation starts to cool, they're going to feel less pressure to continue hiking rates. So that's where we are. we got to pause, but right. what is being described as a quote-unquote very hawkish pause, which means they're not expecting any rate decreases, and they are expecting to increase the rates in the months to come. Yeah, and I always think it's you know worth taking a step back. Like, Why are we even spending any time on this? It's because it's the impact on the overall interest rates for credit cards, for mortgages, for car loans. I mean, we're seeing a record amount of debt. We've over, over a trillion dollars in credit card debt out 
outstanding right now for the average American consumer. And in general, we have very rarely seen any sort of real wage increase, especially whenever yeah. you factor in over the last two years. So to me, the fact that the housing market, you know, we did see a cool, as in it did not go up as much, but the price did not come down on the overall supply of housing, Crystal. Same whenever it comes to the credit card debt. I mean, we expected, you know, especially everyone was like, oh, stimulus checks and all that. It did wipe it out for a time, but actually what's happened is a total resumption of uh, consumer finance patterns. Mm -hmm. And we have seen a record increase with people taking out the same amount of debt, but also servicing it at much higher rates, which are going broke. Also, as I understand it, Student loan, the pause that the Biden administration had agreed to in yeah. their debt, that's going to expire now in what, two or three months. That's so, right. you know, most some 95 percent of people actually did not pay down um, some of their debt while the pandemic was there. Obviously, there was a lot of confusion over whether the debt was going to get canceled or not, given where we are right now with the Supreme Court and the uh, overall like uh, administration of the project. It doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. So resumption of debt payment is also coming back. I mean, that's going to hit, what, 40 something million households on average. It's like two or three hundred dollars or maybe even more per month yeah. uh, that they weren't including in their overall household budget. So don't don't make this uh, you know report out to seem like oh this is rosy and everything is fantastic. Things are still bad at least from what I can see in the overall, you know the co the core numbers. The only real reason that you know things are going down is yeah, gas prices have have come down, but you know, let's be honest, like they still haven't come to a very comfortable place of where they were during the pandemic or even right before the pandemic. So we still have an overall increase in price pretty much across the board. It's just not going up as, as exponentially fast. as it was at some point. Yeah, that's right. And <clears throat> the economy continues to be a very mixed bag. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've covered this week how there are a lot of signs of potential cracks in the economy. You've got foreclosure rates going up. You know, we continue to follow the housing market very carefully. Um, we continue to follow the commercial real estate market really carefully because I think that is where the largest risks um, for the broader economy exist. And then we also can't forget, like, we just had a number of bank failures yes. um, of banks of fairly significant size. And maybe those are just complete outliers and anomalies because of the way that they happen to be structured and the you know types of clientele that they happen to focus on. But no one is really too sure about that. So that's why the Fed is treading carefully here. Up to this point, there's really been unanimous agreement about this extremely hawkish, I mean, you know, very uh, remarkably aggressive pace of rate hikes in recent history. There's been pretty much unanimity about it. Now there's starting to be a lot of divergent pan uh, dis uh, divergent opinions on um, this panel in terms of what they should do going forward. Um, the markets also responded in kind of a mixed way yesterday because, again, they were surprised by the fact they expected the pause, okay, that the rates wouldn't change. They're keeping them high, okay? This is not like, okay, they're backing off. They're keeping them high. That means mortgage rates and other things are going to continue to be high. That means money is going to continue to be expensive. That continues to put the brakes on the economy. But what they were surprised about is this trajectory that was laid out, the expectation that will be multiple increases in the future in this year when they had even floated before or, hey, maybe he starts to, you know, maybe starts to pull back. Maybe they start to lower interest rates. There was some other significant economic news that we really wanted to bring you as kind of an update um, in terms of working people. So I covered my monologue that you've got 350,000 
UPS workers who are right now, they're organized under the Teamsters. This is the largest private sector union contract in the entire country. And they're right now voting on whether or not to authorize a strike. Now, authorizing a strike is different than going on strike, just to be totally clear. Right. Um, and it is expected that vote will pass, because if you don't authorize a strike, you don't really have negotiating leverage in terms of your contract negotiations. But because they're organized as part of a union, they've already been able to win a significant concession. Let's put this up on the screen. Now, let's be clear that uh, it shouldn't take any fight for workers who are you know, delivering our packages to get air conditioning and other heat protection in their trucks when you're talking about, you know, thanks to the climate crisis, but thanks to just hot summers in Phoenix, Arizona as well, temperatures in those trucks were re reaching up to 150 degrees. You literally had hundreds of workers, UPS workers, who were falling out from heat stroke, having to be hospitalized. You had some near kidney failure, had one who actually died. So the Teamsters, in negotiation with UPS, have been able to secure air conditioning for the UPS fleet in a major, what they're describing as tentative deal. Uh, this is from the Teamsters. They say they've agreed to tentative language to equip the delivery and logistics company's fleet of vehicles with air conditioning systems, new heat shields, and additional fans. Um, just to give you some of the specific numbers here, this agreement would require in-cab air conditioning in most UPS delivery vehicles purchased after January 1st, 2024. Two fans would also be installed in package cars, which the union said make up most of the company's 93,000 vehicle fleet. So they're not retrofitting the vehicles they already have, but new vehicles vehicles will have air conditioning. The old vehicles will have additional fans and other heat protection in it. Um, the union and the workers consider this to be a huge win. And again, Sagar, I mean, to me, I just look at it and I'm like, thank God they're doing this. But also, it's ridiculous that 350,000 workers would have to threaten a strike and a total shutdown of the company in order just to get like the basics of their day-to-day -day safety protected. Yeah, it's really stupid. Uh, and it actually does come at a time when Americans are more supportive right now of better wages and protections for workers than at any time really in modern history. Let's go ahead and throw this up there on the screen, guys. Uh, we have here voters strongly supporting raising the minimum wage to $12, $17, and $20 per hour. And this also shows that you were referencing, Crystal, that right now the U.S. is at the bottom in every category on labor policies. Currently, quote, the wealthiest country in the world is near the bottom of every dimension of the index and the worst ranked amongst the 38 OECD countries um, on worker protection. So, look, I mean, some of these are smaller European nations, but some of these are also, like, major dynamic economies as well. And yeah. so when you consider, like, when up against uh, some massive, like, some peer competitors, which also have you know, pretty good dynamic market economies. That's something that everyone I think is genuinely aware of for yeah. these workers, like UPS workers and others, whenever they're striking. We saw this in the railway unions, even though the uh, railway strike, the bipartisan you know consensus was to come in and basically crush them yeah. in the deal. The overall American people were with the railway workers, especially when oh, they yeah. heard, I mean, I, we've played that famous clip of the Newsweek, the Newsmax anchor, I'm sorry, uh, whenever he was like, oh, so He's like, why are you guys striking? What's going on? And he's like, well, we literally don't get any sick leave. And he's like, wait, really? And he's like, oh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, and yeah, he's like, like, imagine if this was like an airline pilot. Yeah, when he heard feel about when that. he heard that, you know, live on the air, it was just a hilarious moment. You know, somebody predisposed uh, to say this is totally. And then he heard the truth. He's like, yeah, that's he's like, you can't you can't have that. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, the government just came in and, and crushed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, a really key point, mm -hmm. because what you see here is a failure of democracy. When you have the 
public, overwhelming majorities, bipartisan majorities of the public, who want one thing, and the actual policy implemented by elites is at the polar opposite end of the spectrum. What can you call that other than a crisis and complete failure of democracy? Um, so in terms of that report of the U.S. ranking last in basically every category with regard to labor rights, you know, there were a number of metrics they considered here. They, they considered wage policies, like what's the minimum wage? What kind of unemployment support is there? Can they consider worker protections, things like health care? Do you have paid leave, as you were mm -hmm. discussing with the railroad workers? Is there equal pay across, you know, genders and identi different identity classes? Is there child care support? Are there pregnancy accommodations? All those sorts of things. They also considered the right to organize. So that's, do you have sectoral bargaining? Do you have, are workers really able to exercise their rights to collectively bargain? Are they really able to exercise their rights to join unions and organize within a union? And across literally nearly every category, we were at the bottom, at the bottom. And again, this is not because this is what like the American people have decided. That's just we're going to have this rugged free market capitalism and sorry, workers, like go out there and fend for yourself and care more about low prices or quote unquote freedom or whatever. No, this is not what the American people want. Put the, the last element here up on the screen with regard to the minimum wage that Sagar was referencing, just so people can see the numbers. 60% of Republicans support raising the minimum wage, not to $12 an hour, not to $15 an hour to $20 an hour. Three quarters of Americans support raising the minimum wage to $20 an hour. And understandably so. And we've have been having the conversation about, you know, the fight for 15 for over a decade now. Prices have gone up, as y'all know, quite a bit. So yeah, $20 per hour, if you're thinking about just being able to, to live and be able to afford an, uh, the rent, be able to afford food prices, like just the basics of living, $20 seems like the absolute minimum at this point. And that's certainly the way the American people feel. And then you contrast that with, you know, the, the Democratic Party. The Republicans forget about it. Many of them will say they don't even think there should be a minimum wage period. Lawmakers, right? at least. Yes. Democrats yeah. will pretend that they support maybe a $15 minimum wage, maybe over some time period. But do they fight for it? No. I mean, just to, to relive recent history, for those who've forgotten all the slings and arrows of this, the one concession supposedly that Bernie got out of Biden when he conceded, he did this whole like hostage video and was like, do you support a $15 minimum wage? And Biden's like, yes, Bernie, I do. They put it to, you know, to try to get it through reconciliation. Parliamentarian says no. That's the last we've heard of it. Mm -hmm. That's it. They, they didn't say, you know what, screw this parliamentarian. We're going to get someone who is going to agree that, the you know, this is OK for the American people. They didn't say, all right, we're going to try to get this into these must-pass bills. We're going to work it into our deal with the republic. And no, they just gave up on it. And so, again, when I look at these numbers, what I really see is a complete hobbling and crisis of democracy. When you have 75 percent of the public saying, here's where we are, and you have the entire political class say, screw you, we don't care, we're not going to do anything about it, other than maybe sometimes pay lip service to it, that's where you start to understand how faith in all our institutions has crumbled, how people are so disgusted with the political process, how they don't feel like their vote counts, how they don't feel like their vote matters, how they don't feel like it matters whether they show up to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or anybody else. Um, so, you know, it's, it's astonishing that we're at a point where just for workers to be able to get air conditioning in their trucks so they don't die 
they basically have to threaten to shut down the entire economy. But that's where we are. And people forget, uh, they, you know, we often look at this as a partisan issue, but, you know, the Florida, Florida, the state of Florida, we talked a lot about this in 2020, on the night that Donald Trump won it by more than President Obama did, in 2012, in 2020, in the contested election, Florida, you know, who went for Trump and then later on went for DeSantis, they passed a minimum wage by some 60 some percent. So there is a huge overlap between people who are willing to vote Trump, Ron DeSantis, who are willing to willing to vote Republican and who do support um, an overall minimum wage. And that's why it's also important to understand, too, whenever you look at the minimum wage um, that is in many Republican states, you know, like in Alabama and in uh, oh, you know, Alabama, for example, it's 725 per hour. And that's actually the case across much of the industrial Midwest in Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, which is the overall federal minimum wage, Louisiana, yeah. um, same federal minimum wage, Mississippi, New Hampshire, even uh, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma. Now, look, in some cases, you know, We've talked before about uh, the minimum wage. We did a lot of discussion of this back on Rising, if I remember correctly. I, I, regional minimum wage and all the discussion around that I actually think is totally reasonable. Yeah, but sure. there is no uh, saying that 725 is actually enough in most of these places yeah. um, where it doesn't even meet the poverty line. And the problem, too, is everyone's like, well, you know, well, if it's the minimum wage, it's like, why should we spend so much time on that? Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, we do have millions of people who actually do make the overall minimum wage. And so it would have a genuinely big impact. There's also been uh, some discussion, too, around whether the corporations and some of them could absorb it. Everybody talks about small businesses. I've even seen previous proposals and discussions around like phase in times for the level of employees and times yeah. that you have. So there are a lot of ways we Open can work all around of that. this. Like there's a lot of discussion that we can have about making sure you absolutely not only minimize, but uh, completely reduce any impact overall on small business and small firms to the corporations that can obviously afford to pay them people like Walmart, Amazon, and all these others. Even if Amazon is what is 15, I might even be $19 an hour. It depends on where you are. Um, right now. But of course, you know, sometimes they will actually raise their minimum wage to also stop from having to do health care to increase churn and remain and have total control over their overall hiring process. These are the fights that are most critical right now, given how our economy is, how it exists in the current moment. We have a tight labor market. That's a good thing for workers. That means that they're less afraid to take strike actions. They're less afraid to vote um, to unionize. They're less afraid to push back on their bosses in individual cases because there are jobs out there. So the question isn't, are there jobs available? The question is, are there good jobs available? And that's where, you know, these fights over, all right, what's the floor going to be federally? What is the minimum wage going to be? Wh what can you actually support yourself on at this point? I mean, this this is the basics of the American, the, the what the American dream and the American bargain should be, that if you work hard and you play by the rules, you're going to be okay. And right now, millions of workers, I mean, they're so close to the edge. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but we just got some dire numbers about the number of people who couldn't afford a $400, you know, emergency expense. It's just insanity. So in any case, I think to me, the biggest takeaway is the distance between the political class, what they consider to be radical. I mean, I don't even know how many members of Congress, if any, have come out in favor of a $20 minimum wage, even the like furthest left, right? And yet, Three quarters of the American people and 60% of the Republicans, Republican base are there. Yeah, always always a good uh, reminder what the actual divides are in this country. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, what you would think if you were watching any other news channel.
Let's go to Ukraine. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on behind the scenes, which is absolutely going to explode into the top of the news. That's a debate inside of the NATO alliance. Should Ukraine be put on a pathway to NATO membership, or should it be just given an extended outright NATO membership right now? So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. This is kind of a New York Times uh, TikTok behind the scenes of all the jockeying uh, that's happening. What they say is, quote, President Biden taken every opportunity over the past 16 months to celebrate NATO's unity on Ukraine. But on one topic, he finds himself somewhat isolated within the alliance. When and how Kiev would join. Mr. Biden, who has been cautious about getting NATO into a direct fight with Moscow, has sought to maintain the status quo of more than a decade. Quote, a vague promise that Ukraine, now the they say it now, arguably the most powerful military force in Europe, uh, will eventually join the alliance, but with no set timetable. Now there is a huge debate among the allies putting pressure on Biden to, quote, support a significantly faster and more certain path to membership for Ukraine. Much of this is actually coming from the Baltic states, including Estonia, Latvia, Poland, and uh, I'm forgetting one of them, with Lithuania, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and uh, also the new, you know, members of the NATO alliance as well, kind of weighing in, trying to bring Ukraine into the overall, uh, into the actual formal alliance. Now, why does this matter? Well, you know, depending on who you believe and what narrative and all that, well, let's just say that the pretext given by Vladimir Putin for invasion of Ukraine in the first place was that he could not extract a promise both from Ukraine or from the United States that they would never become a member of the NATO alliance. Now, the Lat Latvian and Lithuanian, the Baltic argument is that there is no way to guarantee long-term peace to Ukraine without extending them membership and effectively saying that if the war in Ukraine does continue or we decide on some sort of long that it will escalate to some full-blown nuclear conflict. The problem is, is that Crystal, a lot of people don't talk about this. It's not just Putin. Uh, many Russians, uh, at least according to some of the independent polls that we have been able to get out of there, nothing is perfect, but many Russians actually do agree with the overall, um, you know, with the overall idea that Ukraine should never be inside of NATO, given their long history and the border and how they feel about collective security. I am not justifying that. I am only saying that is how Russians feel, including not only Putin, but many of the people inside of the Russian government. So, that sets up the question of like, is this an idea uh, which could actually make things much worse? And yeah. what to me is so fascinating is that Biden is the only guy apparently it's Biden and the Germans right. who are like, well, hold on a second here. Maybe this might be a bad idea. This actually could get us into some sort of insane nuclear conflict. And also, I don't think it's an accident that the people pushing this the most are the people who are in the Baltic states already. It's, uh, this is where I get very frustrated, Crystal. These Baltic states, they have nothing to lose. Like, if there's some sort of conflict, it's game over for them anyway. In America, actually, it's a choice for us as to whether we're going to go nuclear That's over right. the Baltic states and whether we're basically going to, you know, annihilate some of our world-class cities, our economy, and all of that in a conflict which, you know, may, maybe not actually have something to do with us and affect not only our economy, our people, and our overall strategic interests. So I get why the Baltics want to do this, but there's there's no reason why we would want to do this. And actually, if you consider, or if you at least take it at their word, the Russians, that this had something to do with it, you know, not, not in the immediate invasion, but the 2008 promise Ukraine will eventually go into NATO, then why would you want to accelerate the timeline, especially when there's an ongoing act 
active war in the country right now. What does the tripwire even look like? Like, where and when do you invoke Article 5? Is it the current border? Is it if the Russians gain 10% more territory? Right. If you cross this river, but if you don't cross that river? It's like, this is where things get very, very murky. And all of us, all of our lives, really, are on the line. Yeah. I mean, listen. What they would argue is, look, Russia hasn't invaded NATO allies, and there's a reason for that, because they worry about that Article 5 protection, and so this would be a way to prevent future wars, and so that's the case they would make. But I look at it, and it's like, this is a way to guarantee that we actually go to World War III over Ukraine if this happens again. And, you know, the Biden administration's position seems pretty reasonable. They're like, hey— we don't even know where the borders are right now. Yeah. That that you like you can't admit or even like set down a specific timeline for admission of any country when you don't have set borders and when you're in the middle of a full-scale war. So the fact that every other country except the US and Germany is like, let's do it anyway, it just kind of boggles my mind. But Sagar, I think to your point. The fact that it's, you know, the burden is overwhelmingly on the U.S. Here. Yes, we like, pay all the bills. Right. So yeah. so that's why they're, for them, it's like a free rider situation. Of they're like, yeah, bring them in. No problem. Let's do it. For us, it's like, wait a second. What are we committing ourselves to exactly? And so some end characteristic restraint from the Biden administration. It looks like, though, they're under enough pressure that they feel like they have to take some sort of like a, a half measure here. Put this next piece up on the screen from the Financial Times. Um, they say Western allies plan to provide long-term security assurances to Ukraine bilateral agreements to formalize level of military and financial support for Kyiv. And of course, Zelensky is also pushing for that timeline for NATO membership. So Biden and the White House under a lot of pressure here. And effectively, what they are likely to do <clears throat> is to reach an overarching political declaration with Ukraine. Um, they said that under the umbrella declaration, Ukraine would conclude bilateral agreements formalizing that current level of support and establish it on a more long-term footing with space to expand if deemed necessary. But neither the framework document nor the bilateral agreements would have the status of legal treaties and they would be signed outside of the NATO alliance. So this is like... The, I mean, and I don't want to say this is just like a bone they're throwing. This is significant yes, in and it's of still itself. Right. Um, that they were, you know, pressured into making some sort of longer-term security guarantee and commitment here, which I do think makes sense. Some sort of a longer-term security agreement, but I think it makes sense in the context of a resolution to the war. Yes. Not before then. Well, yeah. Look, I actually I wouldn't even say I would say it's way more up for debate because right now, I mean, look, we have no obligation to do anything inside of Ukraine. Anything that we are. Doing doing right now in terms of aid and all of that. In terms of formal formalized legal yeah. um, agreements, nothing. And that's why it's very important to understand we should not get into anything formal or legal about in the future. I'm talking about Senate-ratified Senate agreements without very, very careful consideration because it could literally lead to a nuclear exchange in the future. And I just think that argument that you laid out from the opponents are so, so, so foolish. Oh, well, it hasn't happened yet. It's a 16-month-long war. You can't say rule anything in or out. Anything could happen in the... You know, if you look at timelines in terms of the way that long, drawn-out conflicts like this go, it would take years in order to see what the full spectrum yeah. of, uh, of what the actual possibilities are. So, first of all, can't rule that out. Second... What they point to here is this quad agreement, which would be a non-binding agreement, which would be effectively, you know, kind of 
make aid to Ukraine, uh, they would say like, oh, the U.S. and you know, Ukra uh, the U.S. and the other Quad countries, U.K., Germany, and France, would you know formalize a current level of aid. But you know, for the U.K., Germany, and France, that's not much off their backs. They're not the one who are paying 95% of the military expenses. It's the United States. So the current issue that we have overall is the free riding problem from all of the nations inside of NATO mm -hmm. that are not the U.S. and the U.K., which mm -hmm. are the only two like genuinely great, great powers um, with military, uh, in terms of their military capabilities. France and Germany, too, are powers in their own right, but they're more like regional powers on the continent. Uh, everyone gets mad when I say this, but, you know, Poland's like, well, we pay 2% of our GDP. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, your GDP is literally this, like less than Alabama or something like that. It's just on absolute terms, it really doesn't matter. Same in terms of the Baltic states. And what drives me nuts is that they're, those are actually the most hawkish nations who are trying to get us embroiled in the conflict, you know, if they care so much, okay, spend 100% of your GDP um, on that if it's so existential to you. But they're not, and they, they literally don't even have the capability. They yeah. want Washington to go and pick up the slack for them. Well, we should also not lose sight of the fact, we have said a million times here, and I'll say it again, the Russian invasion is horrific, it's unconscionable, it's illegal, we are completely opposed to yes. it. The Russian position with regard to NATO is eminently correct and reasonable. Mm. I mean, there was an expectation, there was at least an understanding that NATO would not expand towards their borders. We did it anyway. I mean, we knew that we have the cables that say our diplomats knew that it was a red line to even talk about Ukraine admission into NATO and Georgia as well. And we did it anyway. So it's not like there isn't a point here in terms of Russia's view of NATO. So just to put this in the most simplistic terms, their public position Russia's public position is that part of why they invaded Ukraine is over these tensions around NATO. And so our response to that is like, let's up the ante mm -hmm. and make it even more concrete. Nice. Like, let's thumb our nose at you even more. I just think that is reckless and wildly dangerous. But to show you what kind of pressure the uh, Biden administration is being put under here, there's a report in The Guardian that some NATO countries are talking about sending their own troops directly into this conflict. Um, the polls in particular, they said if NATO cannot agree on a clear path forward for Ukraine, there is a clear possibility some countries individually might take action. He argued that the polls would seriously consider going in among others. So that's why they've really put the screws to Biden and why they feel like they have to at least do something here at this next NATO meeting to you know, pro provide some kind of security assistance and uh, guarantees to Ukraine. Otherwise, I mean, this would be this would be wild. Yeah. You know what my response is? Go for it. Sign away and say that if you incur any sort of problem as a result of that, then <clears throat> that's your issue. Guess what? They will never do it if it, that actually was the case because they feel confident that we are going to back them up through our nuclear umbrella. That's, again, it's like you need to make strategic uh, you need to make strategic decisions such that you are factoring in both risk and reward. They bear none of the risk. We're the ones who have to back up all and backstop all of it. So yeah, look, if you want to send your troops into Ukraine, literally that's on you. Go for it. You know, I wish you the best. But if things go south, 
then that's also on you. And should you know it escalate into some broader problem, you deal with it. That's not going to be uh, uh, up to us. Unfortunately, though, that's not the way that Article 5 works, at least in terms of the way it can be invoked. So this is why we all have to spend a lot of time on this and why we dedicated you know, literally the top of this is because arguably this is 10, well, it's 100,000 times more important than whatever is going on with the Ukraine counteroffensive, whatever village you know changes hand here or there. Whether they get NATO membership or not, yeah. which is what Zelensky wants, and by the way, what most NATO countries want, apparently, that will decide whether we ever really do escalate into a broader war, in my opinion. And I have absolutely, I have very little doubt that we would get embroiled in some massive conflict if we were to ever confer genuine NATO membership onto Ukraine. To me, and from everything we've seen so far, given that Putin literally invaded the country, it actually does look like an actual red line. So I guess everybody should decide. You want to go to a full-scale war for Ukraine or not? I, personally, don't. I don't think it's worth it at all. All right, let's go to the next part. Uh, this also gets to exactly why we should have some trepidation around these. And let's go and put this up there, please, on the screen about Belarus. Belarus is currently taking delivery of Russian nuclear weapons, um, forward deploying them much closer toward Ukraine. This is according to uh, President Lukashenko himself, says the country has been taking delivery of the tactical nuclear weapons specifically, some of which he said, quote, were three times more powerful <laughs> than the atomic bombs that the United States dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The deployment is actually Moscow's first move of such warheads, tactical nuclear weapons that could potentially be used on the battlefield outside of Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. So that is why, you know, this was downplayed really in the Western press. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, yeah. it hasn't had. It's like, no, this is the first time literally in 30 something years they've ever new moved nukes outside of Russia. It's a direct response to what's going on in Ukraine. Right. They're moving them closer towards Ukraine. No, that doesn't mean they're going to use them. Yes, it does mean that, you know, things would change significantly. But it also lets us return to something uh, that we talked a lot about during the tactical nuclear weapon discussion, Crystal. There's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. Right. Strategically, that escalates things to a whole other realm. Yes. And as Lukashenko himself said, even these, quote, tactical nukes that are, yeah, they won't annihilate, you know, the entire globe in a single bomb. So three times more powerful than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's, that's, that's where we're at. That's what that's what quote unquote tactical means. I think means. that's so important for people yeah. to understand because you hear that term thrown throw yeah. around like, oh, it's just a little nuke. It's no like, big no. deal. It's like, yeah. no, we're talking about something that is extraordinarily powerful, dangerous, and puts us on a chain of escalation that nobody knows where it will ultimately go. I love the way that they downplay this, too. I mean, even in this piece, they say the U.S. has criticized Putin's decision, but said it has no intention of altering its own stance on strategic nuclear weapons, has not seen any signs that Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon. Like, don't you consider this a sign yeah, that they might sign. be considering use of nuclear weapons? Um, they go on to say the Russian step is nonetheless being watched closely by the U.S. and its allies, as well as by China, which has repeatedly cautioned against the use of nuclear weapons in the war in Ukraine. I do think that part is significant. But it also speaks to another uh, lie that has been told in the press, which is that, like, oh, we keep we keep shipping you know, more advanced and longer-range weapons, and the Russians, they don't respond. They don't escalate. So all these fears of oh, they're going to escalate, are overblown. What do you call this? I call this an escalation. Yes, I, I mean, I call a lot of what Russia has done an escalation, um, you know, in returning to you know, attacks on Kyiv, on 
drafting their own people and up in the ante in terms of this war. I, a lot of that, I think, could very clearly be called an escalation and is in part res in response to the actions that we have ourselves taken here as a country. So, you know, this is the whole ballgame right here, ultimately. Um, will nukes ever be used in this conflict? Are we going to end up accidentally stumbling into World War III? The danger might be small. It might be, you know, 1%. It might be 0.1%. If there is any risk of that at all, it should be the number one thing that we're concerned about here and around the world. Yeah, of course. And also the idea that NATO says that they're not worried is actually just completely wrong. Because what just happened? Put this up there on the screen. Literally, the very same time that the Russians are moving nukes into Belarus, NATO just, NATO just held its largest Air Force drill ever in history to demonstrate alliance capabilities and, quote, solidarity against Russia. The war games officially launched and are called the 2023 Air Defender Military Exercise, also included Finland, as well as many other countries, includes 12 days, 250 aircraft, 10,000 personnel, the largest deployment in the history of all of NATO, all that was happening such to make a very strong, you know, message towards them. And actually, the funniest part to me, Crystal, is that if you look at the actual quotes of what they are saying is, the trigger for me was the capture and the annexation of Russia, and that since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, NATO members' eastern flank want the assurance that they will defend it should the Kremlin turn its sights on them. That was the German general who was in charge of the exercise himself and said, while he painted it, quote, as purely defensive in nature, behind the scenes say that they hope it will show President Putin for that the alliance is not backing down in its support for Ukraine as Kyiv begins its counteroffensive. So clearly, this is in response to Russian, not only the invasion of Ukraine, but also the deployment of these nuclear weapons yeah. and the increased fear that this could escalate into something. If they didn't have fear, then they wouldn't have the drill. The drill is quite literally being held as a response to what's going on right there. So once again, you cannot say with a straight face that you are not worried about this escalating to anything. That's why we sent thousands of troops to NATO's eastern flank in the first place after this response, why we literally inducted two or tried to induct two new members, successfully inducted one into the alliance, and then now having this ongoing uh, you know, air drill that's happening. And also literally at the same time you and I are talking, all NATO defense ministers are gathered right now in Brussels, mm -hmm. hammering out more agreements, running over more types of exercises and things they can do. So it's not like strategically that things aren't moving and they aren't changing. Yeah, I think the whole point of this is just to underscore for people, you know, we can feel, it, it can feel a little bit like the frog in the boiling water. You just keep hearing this news uh -huh. over and over again and increased escalation and the next step on the ladder and now we're sending F-16s and now, you know, the largest war games in NATO history and now we're uh, talking about a timeline for Ukraine to enter NATO and now Russia is moving nukes into Belarus. It can feel exhausting. It can be hard to hold on to that sense of alarm at where all of this is is heading, but I think it's just really important for people to keep in the front of their minds what a dangerous, volatile, and unpredictable situation we continue to be in so long as this war continues. Yeah, uh, that's well said. Okay, guys, let's get to some domestic politics here. So I wanted to start with uh, what's a really interesting poll about how Americans feel about a potential third-party effort. Put this up on the screen. Um, now, keep in mind that these numbers are not based on any specific third-party candidate. 
they give people the option of Biden, Trump, or third party, and Biden, DeSantis, or third party. So it, it can be like, this is basically like the third party candidate of your dreams is the way that voters would interpret this. And this is from uh, Suffolk University, USA Today, you know, well-respected pollsters uh, to the extent that such a thing exists anymore. Biden, they have at 34, over Trump at 32, third party taking 23% of the vote. And interestingly, actually, uh, the margin is wider for, for Biden if he's against DeSantis, 33 over DeSantis is 26, with a third party at 25%. So you basically have in this poll a reflection of the fact that people are really not excited about any of these choices, to mm -hmm. be perfectly honest with you. And even though you have a lot of hard partisan loyalists in this country, you also have a lot of people who would theoretically be open to a third party candidate. Now, of course, there are a lot of barriers in the US to third party candidates running, to them having success. It's not easy to obtain ballot access. There are only a few organizations that do. Um, but as I said, I think this really reflects how you have higher interest in this election in third party efforts than I believe you did last time around. I think the levels are more consistent with the third party interest we saw in 2016 when people were really not excited about Trump and there were a lot of people really not excited about Hillary Clinton. And so you had um, Gary Johnson and you had Jill Stein in those elections. Now, liberals will tell you Jill Stein was a spoiler and she got enough, et cetera, to, to throw the election. I would personally say that Democrats should have done a better job appealing to voters if they wanted to win that <laughs> election. Um, but there is no doubt that there is a heightened interest in a third-party effort this time around. And so you see some burgeoning third-party efforts. We've already covered here how Dr. Cornell West, who is, you know, on the left, he's really well-respected, well-known political thinker um, and academic. He had initially announced that he was going to be running as a People's Party candidate, which people, including myself, found quite perplexing because they don't have ballot access in most states. They don't have any track record of um, fielding a candidate or having success fielding a candidate. And so if you're running just as People's Party candidate, you're basically a glorified write-in, which the limits of, you know, the efficacy of that is going to mm -hmm. be quite limited. Well, he just announced that he is going to be actually pursuing the nomination of the Green Party. Put this up on the screen. I think Ryan and Emily covered this yesterday as well, but I thought it was important for us to um, chime in on this too. Cornell West says, in the spirit of a broad united front and coalition strategy, I'm pursuing the nomination of the Green Party for President of the United States. Go to CornellWest24.com for more information and continue to support this unprecedented effort to empower precious poor and working people here and abroad. I thank the volunteers of the People's Party for the initial launch. And um, Sagar, I got to tell you, I mm. think this is a like, I think the Biden administration should be pretty concerned about this. Yeah, they should. Because Cornell West, Dr. West, is a powerful person. He's a powerful orator. He has a voice of moral conscience and moral clarity that is incredibly compelling to people, even people who disagree with him on some of the issues. He's very effective at talking to people who don't agree with him exactly on the issue. I mean, he used to go on Fox News. I don't know if he, oh, know if I he remember. still does. I remember. Fox that. News all the time. He's known for, you know, being willing to reach out to anyone who's willing to have any sort of legitimate or honest conversation, even some people who aren't willing to have really a good faith conversation. Um, he's a very compelling figure at a time when people are desperate for any sort of alternative to what is a really depressing choice between Biden and Trump. So um, I think this is quite significant that he's decided to pursue a, a Green Party effort because they do have ballot access in almost all of the states. So this is a much more serious organization that'll 
behind him. Exactly. So now that he has ballot access, at least in all 50 states, it will mean that, look, he's got much higher name ID, arguably, than even Jill Stein did at that time. He's got a significant period yeah. in order to fo force the issue, force media coverage. All he really has to do is, you know, at least not even place necessarily, but, he, you know, get some media attention, um, have some real events, and that's it. Like, game on, especially if you start showing up in the polls. I mean, overall, the Biden administration should be terrified. I was just reading this morning, politically. Yeah. RFK Jr. is very likely going to win the first two states in the Democratic primary. Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa and New Hampshire, because they are likely to go forward and not treat South Carolina as the first, even though the DNC changed the rules. Biden is likely not even going to be able to contest in those states. Now, the media and everybody else will do their best to just downplay that and say it didn't happen. A win is a win, okay? When you win something, you have to cover yeah. it. So you have two Kennedy wins um, in those first two states going into South Carolina. Okay, Biden probably will do uh, well in South Carolina. But guess what? <coughs> and then, Crystal, what are we? We're right around the corner from Super Tuesday. And when you have got all that media attention, then you could have high third party initiative. You could have Kennedy literally winning the first two states. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're in a way weaker political position than probably any modern president since Jimmy Carter ran yeah. in, 19, in 1980. And remember the drumbeat from the media. Biden's opponents aren't serious. They're not qualified. I mean, they have done everything they can to just pretend like it's not happening. And that's necessary because otherwise, you know, the fact that the DNC is saying we're absolutely not going to have any debates or any real, like, small-D democratic process um, becomes completely unconscionable. You know, overwhelmingly voters, including voters in the Democratic Party, think there should be debates, think there should be a real process here by which voters can evaluate Joe Biden and RFK Jr. and Marion Williamson and anyone else who gets into the Democratic primary race. So, yeah, the fact that you have the two early states, I mean, as much as they will want to ignore and just pretend like that didn't happen either, and there will be some chunk of the electorate that's like, yeah, you're right, that doesn't really count. You can't just completely dismiss out of hand if the guy who's in the White House loses the first two early states. And so to get back to uh, Dr. West and his role here, you know, the reason I say that I think it's, it's a problem for Biden, these things can be complex about which party a third party candidate actually takes away from. But Dr. West is clearly on the left. And Biden has a real weakness on his left at this point, because especially post Ron Klain leaving as uh, chief of staff, their whole strategy has been to pivot towards the right, right? I mean, they crushed the railway workers as one example. They struck the you know, terrible situation with the debt ceiling and the deal that they end up striking with the Republicans. They've just on issue after issue chosen to pivot to the right because I assume electorally they think, oh, this is what we've got to do in order to appeal to the quote unquote center for uh, a general election. But now you've got an issue where you've pissed off environmentalists, you've pissed off a lot of um, your progressive base on the left. They're actively looking for other alternatives. And now you not only have some strong contenders in the Democratic primary, you've got a really powerful force coming at you in the general election as well. So listen, do I think a third party effort could succeed and actually, you know, Dr. West become president of the United States? No, because not because of any fault of his own, but because of structural barriers that exist in American politics. Could it really reshape 
the uh, quality and tenor and direction of this election, there's no doubt about it, uh, especially with him pivoting to a Green Party run and with the fact that the Biden administration still, even with—they they think they've crushed the left. They think that the left will show up, that they'll vote blue no matter who, because the alternative is so bad. I mean, they, this genuinely, I think, is how they see it, that they don't have to do anything to win over the young voters who are disgusted with Joe Biden, who are on the left, who are disgusted with Joe Biden. They think they don't have to do anything. And, you know, we saw them make that calculation in 2016, and we saw how it worked out for them. Um, that's not— so there is a third-party effort that they are concerned about, though, even though they haven't uh, paid any mind, apparently, to Dr. West or to any of Biden's um, you know, primary competitors. So put this up on the screen. There's been this nascent effort from No Labels, which is this like grotesque corporate Wall Street monstrosity of an organization with really no popular support, but um, they have lots of money, so they hang around anyway. And they have been uh, sort of shopping around this idea of, well, maybe we'll run a candidate. And, you know, Jamie Dimons gets floated here, the CEO of uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase. Joe Manchin gets floated here. It's like for the people who think that Joe Biden and Donald Trump aren't pro-Wall Street enough, this is like the candidate for them, which, again, I don't—that's like, you know, people who work on Wall Street and no one else. But— you have uh, kind of a panic from the White House about the possibility of a no-labels candidate running and splitting the quote-unquote anti-Trump coalition. The headline here from The Washington Post, Michael Shearer, Democrats meet with anti-Trump conservatives to fight no-labels 2024 bid. Biden allies seek to undermine an effort they see as a threat to the president's re-election. You had a, a lot of high-level Sagar uh, figures who were at this meeting, former White House chief of staff Ron Klain, DNC senior advisor Cedric Richmond, Stephanie Cutter, former campaign advisor Barack Obama. Um, they were joined by former senators Doug Jones, Heidi Heitkamp, Claire McCaskill, along with representatives of the anti-Trump Lincoln Project, former mm. Weekly Standard publisher Bill Kristol and Lucy Caldwell, former Republican consultant who now advises the independent Ford Party, in, according to people present at the event who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Um, you also had there uh, Dimitri Melhorn, who is a big donor advisor for Reid Hoffman and has really been very yes. central. Ryan did a fantastic and very revealing interview with him that I would encourage people to check out over on um, Ryan's podcast. But their whole theory is that the way to win is not to, you know, deliver materially for the American people and do a good job as president so that you have a high approval rating and people actually want to reelect you. Their whole idea is we're going to make it so all of the people who hate Donald Trump are united behind the same candidate. We don't really have to do anything other than not be Donald Trump. And that is our path to victory. Let's be honest, it worked in 2020. Let's be honest, it basically worked again in midterms. But the margins are extremely thin and extremely narrow. So even though this no-labels effort is not going to have a whole lot of popular support, if they draw even a tiny bit of support and split this theoretical, quote-unquote, anti-Trump coalition, the White House is very concerned about what it would all yeah. actually do to Biden's re-election chances. I feel like everybody is forgetting Biden only won the presidency by some 150,000 votes across three yeah. or across five states and actually 30,000 against three states. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally rains a little bit in Georgia and things go very much differently. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, I, I don't know if it rains in Maricopa County, but let's say it did um, <laughs> in, in Arizona. Well, you know, once again, we're Patiently. talking about like 10,000 <laughs> votes or something like that. I mean, that's total madness whenever you have that little 
low of a sliver. Sure, things worked out in the midterms. Who knows what things are going to look like in 2024 come that election? No labels then. The reason why they have to take it so seriously is because they're not strong. That's that's the issue. And my suspicion is, is that should Cornell West campaign get some traction, then they are going to be pulling the knives of everything you've ever seen yes. in order to get him off of the ballot in every single one oh, of these yeah. states, suing them. That's why they're doing right now. The Arizona Democratic Party already sued to take no labels oh, yeah. off. That's why they're freaking out yes. inside of the White House. They cannot take any third party real contender whatsoever. Yes. They don't, they don't actually believe in democracy. I mean, that's, yeah. like, really clear. They don't actually believe in democracy. Because if you did, there's a very simple answer to this. It doesn't involve, like, suing them or, you know, with with regard to the corporate efforts, they're play all nicey-nice. Mm -hmm. They have them to the White House. Let's talk. Let's work it out. Let's negotiate. With regard to the left-wing efforts, it will be, like, smear them as fascist enablers and Putin's puppets and whatever. They'll be just, like, disgusting attacks against them. There's another strategy, though, which is to, like, actually do a good job as president, and then people will want to reelect you. You know, it's not that complicated. That's how it could work in a democracy. You have a lot of power to do things that would be good for the American people. You've already missed a lot of chances at that, but it's not too late. You still got a shot to actually win people over and not have to go the path that Ron Klain laid out, which is, I brought this up a million times, but this is their strategy, when Emmanuel Macron won in France— and he had, like, a 30% approval rating. And Ron Klain, former chief of staff, tweets out, like, oh, interesting. He was able to win because people were so disgusted by the alternative. That's their only play. And so anything that disrupts that whatsoever, they hit the panic button over because they have no—they will do anything to win except actually deliver for the American people so that they want to reelect yeah, them well, affirmatively rather than just as an alternative to, like, a horrific choice in Donald Trump. That's too difficult, Crystal. It's too <laughs> difficult to actually True. do any work. All right, let's get to the next topic, UFOs. Had to shove this one in there just because uh, there's just, it's too good and there's so many developments. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, as I outlined actually to RFK Jr. when he was like, are you aware of this whistleblower? Or I was like, brother, who do you think you're talking to here? Uh, yes, we're aware. To? Dave Grush, uh, the, we, the whistleblower has come forward the, from the intelligence community alleging that there are multiple alien spacecraft inside the U.S. government possession. Okay, so that interview has already come forward. There's been an hour, over an hour long that's been released. I encourage everybody to go and watch it. That's on News Nation. It's on their YouTube channel as well. Uh, many of the allegations in there are absolutely stunning. So the next question is, how are Congress going to handle it? Because part of what Dave Grush is saying is you guys were lied to, is that the Pentagon is quite literally lying to you about all of these existence of the programs, about the developments inside of the building. Well, actually, they've gone ahead and actually been asked about it. So let's put this up there with some really revealing quotes. These are all compiled um, by Matt Lazla over at Wired, who asked some of these senators. Senator Warner, quote, uh, there's been a lot incoming. Frankly, I just need to get find out more information on this. But here was the really interesting quote from Senator Hawley, quote, I'm not surprised by these latest allegations because it sounds pretty close to what they kind of grudgingly admitted to us in the briefing. It's not good. None of it's good. We want to get to the bottom of this. 
I think it's disturbing. Senator Gillibrand also, who has been a real leader on the topic, says, quote, I have no idea. I'm going to do the work and analyze it and figure it out. We need to look at whether there are rogue special access programs that no one is providing oversight for. The goal for me will be having a hearing on that at some point so that we can assess if these special access programs actually exist. So if there are special access programs out there that are somehow outside of the normal chain of command and outside the normal appropriations process, they have to divulge that to Congress. Now, the reason why that is so important is that one of the allegations here that's come forward, Crystal, is that there is actually basically rogue spending and budgeting going on outside of the normal system in order to cover up what Gillibrand is alleging there, which are unique special access programs that the American people have never been notified about, nor do they have any oversight of, including of Congress. Yeah. This is kind of gets to maybe why the Pentagon can't pass any audits. I'm not saying that this isn't just, it's just UFOs. Like that's the entirety of it. I'm saying things are designed in such a way such that assessing and auditing and t- you know taking an uh, actual note of where the money is going is probably to the benefit of several black programs mm. that are out there. And what really Dave Grush is alleging is that this has been going on for decades, which would would fit with a pattern of cover-up of inside of the Pentagon. So that's number one that I wanted to bring everybody. Number two is an equally fascinating um, piece from Vanity Fair. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. And it gives a little bit of the background. Why did the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Politico not publish the report that was brought forward outlining Dave Grush's allegations. So as they lay out, you know, Ralph Blumenthal spent 45 years on staff at the New York Times. Leslie Keene literally, you know, wrote with Ralph Blumenthal the 2017 story on UFOs that debuted in the New York Times. Why did they turn it down? Well, according to Charlotte Klein, she's a media reporter over there who spoke with some people behind the scenes, the Times straight up decided not to publish this piece, Crystal. They just decided, nope, we're not touching this. They tried to report it, but weren't able to get to the bottom. The second thing is the Washington Post is denying. They're like, we didn't turn it down. They're like, what it is is that we were reporting it out. As in, they had accepted the piece, or not accepted it, but they'd looked at it, and they were like, well, we want to hammer this out. We want to ask some more senators and stuff about it. Well, what Leslie Kleen and Ralph Blumenthal are saying is that the reason why it ended up here in the debrief is that Politico, the Washington Post, Post, did not (laughs) want to allow enough time, or wanted to allow way more time to add more context and facts. The issue is that Grush's identity apparently was beginning to leak out Mm -hmm. in the UFO community, and he was getting contacted by some interesting people who were out there. And so Leslie Keene and Ralph Blumenthal said it was of the utmost importance to get this out as soon as humanly possible because his identity would otherwise leak. They would lose, you know, the scope of the story and the control on the story. Yeah. That's ultimately why it ended up over there at the debrief. But it is clear the Times just, just straight up turned it down, which, you know, look, this could be the scoop of the century. Um, you know, if it all ends up being true, and for some reason, there's clearly a lot of squeamishness that's going on. You know, I'm in contact with people in the UFO community, researchers and others. I know that sounds funny, but these are very serious people, okay? And what they've told me too, Crystal, is behind the scenes, a lot of media outlets, individual reporters, they're interested. But from the top down, they're like, no, you can't cover this. You can't have any real scrutiny of this at all, which, you know, to me, I'm reading this quote from Holly, from Gillibrand and all this. I mean, it seems pretty real. Yeah. It seems very real that they're taking, not, I mean, show me one of them that says this guy sounds like a crank. Every single one said, hey, we got to take this real seriously. I mean, they know. They yeah. know cranks from non-cranks whenever well, they, they have they to have look at They have a lot it. of uh, interaction yeah. with cranks. Yeah, including many of their <laughs> colleagues. Yeah. Uh, facts. Yeah. Um, 
my guess is that there's just there's such a so much like decorum and like appearance humping over mm -hmm. at the New York Times. Well said. That they're just like afraid of looking ridiculous, you know? And mm -hmm. so even though they could have reported it out, even though they're I mean, these are serious, credible reporters yes. with a track record who ended up reporting out this piece. So this isn't just like some, you know, crank weirdo who's obsessed with UFOs. Like these are, you know, real legitimate journalists um, that the New York Times has experience working with too, by the way. And so that would be my guess is they just like, they're afraid of looking ridiculous. They're saying afraid of stepping outside of the bounds of what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to say. So they just take a pass. Yes. I mean, they didn't even come up with an excuse. The Post and Politico were like, yeah, we, we totally would have done it, but just didn't have the time. Here's okay, another sure. reason why it's so important. You know, look, you cannot dismiss some things that are just straight up facts. Friend Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp, they released actually one of the form, forms of the disclosure of urgent concerns and the complaint of reprisal actually from Dave Grush, which is signed by him completely mm -hmm. unclassified and also signed by his lawyer. Let's go ahead and put this, please, guys, up on the screen. This is a screenshot from what Jeremy Corbell released over on the Weaponized podcast. And as you can see here, I mean, read the allegations um, that Dave Grush says here. Mr. Grush previously served as a fully cleared member of the United States government UAP task force. He has direct knowledge that certain IC elements have purposefully and intentionally withheld and concealed UAP-related classified information from the U.S. Congress. He has direct knowledge that this classified information has been withheld and concealed by the involved IC elements to purposefully and intentionally thwart legitimate congressional oversight of the UAP program. UAP is a, you know, another way of saying UAP. UFO. And he said specifically that in July of 2021, he constantly, confidentially provided UAP-related classified information to the Department of Defense Inspector General. This is literally almost over a two-year process that has been playing out behind the scenes. And we have here his genuine signature by his lawyers that he's testifying before this uh, that has been brought forward as part of a whistleblower complaint given to the Inspector General, which was then received and said that they were urgent and they needed to be looked into. I mean, I don't know what else we can really lay out for people. And yet behind the scenes also, uh, what we have seen is the Pentagon is continuing basically to call him a straight up liar. The yeah. Pentagon and the UAP task force, Susan Goh, who's one of the spokespeople over there, she came out and she was just like, yeah, this is totally untrue. There's no existence of any of these programs. United States Air Force came out with a statement just being like, yeah, look, ever since Project Blue Book and all of that, close the door. There's no reason that we should even be looking into this. I mean, the, the cover up is happening in plain sight. The only hope we have are these congressional representatives and whether they're actually going to get to the bottom of it. But I mean, really what we're looking at here is a vast conspiracy of people who have been covering this up now for decades, special access programs, or Grush is straight up psychotic. All these other people that have come forward to Michael Schellenberger and all that, look, yeah, maybe they're just stone cold crazy. It's very possible. It's certainly possible, but watch the interview. You know, maybe, maybe. Look, I've seen hucksters out there before, but this many people, this level of seriousness, the testimony to his character and all of that, the fact that he was vetted by Jeremy Corbell, by Leslie Keene, by Ralph Blumen, mean, these are yeah. all people who've been met a lot of crazy people out there, you know, before. And they don't just bring these things forward without any recourse. I believe him. I believe him whenever he talks. So what do you say to, yeah. like in Vanity Fair, they were like, okay, you have a track record of a credible person. You have other people who are corroborating mm -hmm. your claims, but where's the evidence? 
You know, where's the like, where's the photo? Where's the, photo? Where's the material? Right. Where's the something? Because I do think it's reasonable for people to say like, okay, this is an unbelievable, like it's, mm -hmm. it's a literally unbelievable claim. Mm. And so in order for us to take this seriously, you have to give us a little something more than just well, some some chitty chat. Well, guess what? It's classified. I don't think everybody keeps forgetting that. He has to come forward through the official whistleblower process. He can't just leak classified information. They're going to lock him up. They're going to throw him in jail. Right. So he can't, first of all, he even said, I never saw anything. I just saw the existence of the program. That's not what he's alleging. What he's alleging is, I know that these programs exist. I'm not saying I saw it. He's never claimed to be some sort of eyewitness. He said, I've you know seen people right. who would testify the forward. Okay, so we need those names and we need to get them under oath and bring them before Congress. But he, what he has claimed, first, that's, I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. He has to deal with the U.S. government and their classification regime. If he leaks something like that, it's the easiest pretext in the world to throw him in jail literally for the rest of his life. Look at Edward Snowden or Julian Assange about what's happening to them. Would you have confidence about bringing that forward? No, yeah. you absolutely can't. So, Although they could even go after him just for what he's already that, revealed. Well, I mean, from what I've understood, yeah. you know, it's not like they're making his life all that easy right now. So look, let's just keep all of this in mind you know, as we move forward and as we continue to ask uh, our congressional representatives yeah. to actually take up the mantle and you know, maybe try and get to the bottom of this. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, if you were to go back to the original days of the World Wide Web and the promise of the internet and tell everyone what the world would look like today, they would be stunned, they would be dismayed. The web in its original conception was to be a free marketplace of ideas and a tool for destroying established institutions to circumvent the centers of power. At first, that was kind of true. But over time, we saw that established institutions either co-opted the web or worse, that the new institutions of the web from the early days became their own centers of power. The Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, the Apples, the Amazons, they replaced the original major institutions. They became behemoths in their own right, touching the lives of almost every American citizen and often the lives of almost every citizen of every developed country on the globe. This isn't just a touch either. We're talking about our ability to communicate, to enter our homes, to remit payment, to use transportation. All of this it these days relies in some ways on these companies. And so these companies' impartiality is vitally important. For the first two decades or so, their existence, it really wasn't even an issue. It wasn't thought of. They seemed to just be utilities. Your ability to be a customer of Apple or Amazon or Google didn't have anything to do with your social or your political views. But then there was a great awakening. It happened. Everyone had to take a stand. The election of Trump only poured gasoline on that fire. Suddenly, the companies themselves, they're not just utilities anymore. They started to kick people off their services for reasons that had nothing to do of whether they could pay or not. And this set up a new dystopia, an almost private social credit score system where at any time, for any reason, your ability to exist as a normal human being in 2023 can just be cut off for wrong think or even alleged wrong think. The latest example is so crazy, it is almost difficult to even wrap your head around. It revolves around a Baltimore man's recent experience with Amazon. Brandon Jackson, he's a Baltimore resident who on May 25th found himself in a weird predicament. He couldn't log in to his Amazon account. And it wasn't just a nuisance. The issue was his Amazon account was linked to his smart home devices. It was run by the Alexa system. No Amazon, no smart home. So he did some digging. 
it appeared he had received an email the day before from Amazon from an executive asking him to call the company. He was mystified. Since when do you need to call Amazon? It almost seemed like a prank or a phishing scam. After he gets on the phone with the Amazon executive, he discovers the delivery driver of a package on a day before reported hearing a, quote, racist remark as he dropped his package off at Jackson's home. Now, it's important to understand a few things here. Number one, Jackson himself is a black man. Number two, he was living in a Baltimore neighborhood, also predominantly black. Number three, most important of all, Jackson was literally not at home, nor was anyone else in his household at the time of the delivery and alleged incident. Luckily, he was actually able to gain access through a third party to his smartphone, smart home doorbell footage, and he verified that the automated response after delivery driver rang the bell was, quote, excuse me, can I help you? The driver reported the remark, was also wearing headphones at the time of the incident. Jackson believed that he somehow had misheard it while wearing those headphones. Jackson compiled multiple video angles from directions to verify nothing had occurred, and he submitted this evidence to Amazon. But he had to wait days before his account was restored. All of this was verified by YouTuber Luis Rossman. Now, the company did not even apologize to him. They did not acknowledge any fault, quite literally rendering his entire system useless that he used to run his home. Now, I know that people out there who can't even get into their house without Alexa or can't even use their TV, what would they do? And for what? The guy didn't say anything. The moronic delivery driver misheard an automated remark. Does that mean from now on, all of us are literally at the mercy of hearing an Amazon delivery driver drive uh, how what they might or may not hear onto whether our account can exist or not? It's easy to say, yeah, this guy's an idiot. Why is he relying entirely on Amazon for his house? But realistically, how many options do you really have out there for a smart doorbell that's easy to use? Sure, you can use your own, you can do your own research, you can rig everything up locally. Who has the expertise and the time, the money to do that? Or take Smart Home and Amazon out of it. What is your, about your iMessage account for if you use an iPhone, your Gmail account, or your Google Drive, or your Microsoft account that you may use for your business? All of us, it seems, are simply one fake accusation away from being cut off from a vital part of our lives or our business. The world really saw how precarious this all was after January 6th. You can hate what happened. You can still be alarmed, though, that Parler, a social media site we now know is not really central at all to planning the January 6th attack, was simultaneously nuked from the Apple App Store and basically removed from Amazon Web Services. Prior to that incident, most people didn't even know that was possible. Amazon Web Services was like a utility, but it's not a utility because it's not law governed by any laws. It's a private company. It can do whatever it wants. Same with the way that our payment processing companies like Visa and MasterCard are. They can simply just not accept you as a customer if they don't want to. And right now, their services have been pulled mostly from fringe actors. But that's just how it starts. The architecture for a private social credit score system, it's already here. You can be locked out of your phone and your smart home, your bank, and you will have no right or recourse to contest what happens to you. In many ways, you actually have more rights when you are accused by the government than you do when you're threatened by the might of corporate power in this country. In the meantime, remember, anytime you willingly sign up for any of these services, you're signing up for something else too. That's the iron hand of fake justice in the event should you ever be accused. How crazy is this? He didn't even say anything. Story is so wild. He did not. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, once upon a time, 
Student athletes at top colleges were treated more as indentured servants than as the remarkable competitors that they are. While their schools and TV networks all profited off their hard work and grueling schedules, the athletes themselves, they were denied any opportunity to share in the fruits of their labor. Then everything changed. In 2021, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of student athletes who were challenging limits on internships and other educational benefits that schools could use to lure them. And that decision opened the door for a whole lot more. As Justice Kavanaugh wrote at the time, traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. The NCAA is not above the law. Now, the NCAA, seeing the writing on the wall, decided that rather than being forced into actually directly compensating student-athletes, they would change their rules and they would allow athletes to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. So athletes could nab sponsorship deals, they could monetize their social media, thereby enabling at least some of them to earn real money off of their prowess, including athletes in sports that don't have a professional league waiting to pay them big bucks after their college career. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Well. Not quite. Did you actually think capitalism was going to lead to some noble, perfect meritocracy? Come on, guys. This is America at the height of influencer culture, and sex sells a whole lot more than your actual athletic prowess. According to a new report from the Free Press, the top female in particular college athlete earners are not the top in the sport. They are the hottest girls with the savviest social media presence. The reporter dubs this dynamic the NCAA's hot girl problem. In particular, they highlight the Cavender twins, lean, blonde, twin basketball players who transferred from Fresno State to University of Miami in order to be closer to the limelight. Just to become a Division I college athlete, let's be clear, it's a really impressive accomplishment. So I'm not trying to take anything away from these ladies' ability. But they're clearly not being paid for their basketball skills so much as their skill at frolicking in a bikini on a beach. After all, as the article points out, top women's basketball players average nearly 30 points per game. Now, Haley Cavender scored about 12 points per game. That's pretty impressive, her last year at Miami. Hannah averaged about four points per game. Another top female earner, Olivia Dunn, is an excellent gymnast who has distinguished herself at Louisiana State on the uneven bars in particular. But it's not like she's Olympian caliber good at the sport. She is, however, Olympian caliber good at Instagram, where she posts exactly like your typical Instagram model and has racked up over 4 million followers. The branding incentives on the men's side are apparently a little bit different, seemingly a bit more related to actual athletic performance. But even here, ultimately, all comes down to your ability to brand. And for the guys, having a famous last name, that seems to be the ultimate trump card there. The top earners on the men's side are LeBron James's son, Bronny, and Peyton Manning's nephew, Arch. Of course, none of this should have been remotely surprising to anyone who actually thought it through. In fact, I remember years ago, there was kind of a similar panic about the fact that tennis player Anna Kornikova was one of the best known and highest paid female athletes in the world. Even though her tennis ranking topped out at eighth in the world and she never actually won a singles title, but she was gorgeous and she was blonde and she knew how to work a camera, even though this was the pre-social media age. Now, a casual scroll through the list of top paid women's athletes today reveals a remarkably similar dynamic. Sponsorship deals aren't just about appearance, it's more about overall brand, but being hot certainly doesn't hurt. Just ask number three on the list, freestyle skier Eileen Gu, who is both an incredible Olympic gold medalist and also exceptionally beautiful. 
Number one on the list, actually in 2022, was tennis player Naomi Osaka, who has a look and a story that fashion mags fell all over themselves to feature. Brands ate it up completely. She's currently ranked in the 400s in tennis, but as of last year, at least, she was at the absolute top in terms of female earnings. Now, I don't think any of these people, not the Cavender twins or Osaka or the cute gymnast girl Instagram model, I don't think they should be, feel bad about any of this. As they say, don't hate the player, hate the game. Twins, Haley and Hannah, they were asked about the fundamental unfairness of their fame and fortune, as opposed to other superior, more impressive athletes. And they were appropriately apologetic about the system and about their privilege. Hannah told the Free Press, quote, I mean, obviously, yes, this is a touchy subject, but I think that we are privileged in a way. Obviously, we don't deal with the same things that other women deal with or other people deal with, and that's just how our world is, and it's awful. They also expressed an awareness of how fleeting their Instagram model cum sports star celebrity might actually be. After all, they just graduated and they are not headed to the WNBA. So an uncertain future in a fickle capitalist marketplace where relevance can die in an instant, that's already staring them right in the face. To me, though, the whole situation is pretty revealing. It shows the distance between what we tell ourselves we value, merit, hard work, excellence, and what we actually value. After all, these sponsors and these athletes, they're just responding to what the human beings who make up the market actually want. It also shows you the kind of twisted, supposed meritocracies are actually built, even in the best of cases, in the free market. On Wall Street, for example, we would theoretically, in an ideal world, want to reward stability, ethics, competence. Instead, cheaters and reckless risk takers win the prize. In corporate America, we would want to reward innovation, concern for employees, but instead we reward the biggest ladder-climbing psychopaths who are best at rigging markets into monopolies. So don't be mad at these girls for getting their bag. Still better that at least some athletes can monetize their labor in some way. But let's not pretend this is anything approaching economic power for the vast majority of extraordinary student athletes. Um, Sagar, as you know, I was- And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. We're very excited to have the panel back here on Breaking Points. We've got it's two- historic, actually. It's a historic moment many people are- We've got two fantastic <laughs> guests. Ryan Gerdusky is a political consultant and author, and we've got Sam Mangold-Lennett. He is a staff editor over at The Federalist. Guys, we've been hyping this one up big, uh, so we appreciate you. You're our first in-studio guest. I already think it looks pretty nice. Let's go and see that beautiful wide shot, people. Look oh, that. <laughs> oh, Look at that. It's so much Premium less awkward members. than the old set when yeah. we would have yes, guests on. <laughs> I, I'm loving it a lot. Okay, so the reason we guys are here is uh, we wanted to do a panel about America First, the case for Ron DeSantis and for Trump, and... Uh, it's, I think, an interesting way to approach it because the way that most of the media talks about this, they leave kind of the policy out and then they just focus on the politics. We're actually going to put the politics second and focus a little bit on policy. Ryan, I want to start with you. You're somebody who's been active in the movement now for quite a long time. Um, you're somebody just call who— call me old. Uh, no, uh, um, you're not old. He's not old. He looks great here on the yeah. camera. But, Ryan, you were somebody who were making the case on America First um, even very— very early days, 2015 onwards. Yeah. Somebody who's voiced some support now um, for Governor Ron DeSantis. So I think it'd be valuable to start with you and, and kind of lay out what is America first and why does Ron DeSantis kind of fit into that vision? Well, I think that we've had now several decades of the people running our government putting working class people last and oftentimes working for the for their own ideas and their own narratives about um, globalism or international organizations, international peace missions, um, and lost in that is the fact that working class people in this country, they have died earlier than, than, than they have in decades. They're poorer than they have been in decades. They don't have real material wealth as they had. A lot of their children who have fought in these wars are now coming back addicted to fentanyl. I think that, um, 
I think that Trump did a great job at breaking through the Republican narrative, the longstanding Republican narrative that dates back to Reagan. However, when he was president, he didn't do many of those things. Mm. Um, he hired people that he either was related to or that was brought to him by the RNC. And that was really, really bad for a lot of things. We never got a wall. We never got most of his immigration policies. The factories, that, jobs that did come back, they didn't go to the Midwest. We didn't get infrastructure. I mean, Washington loves spending money. He couldn't even get them to spend money on infrastructure. Um, and I think we need somebody more capable and more uh, understanding of how to use the levers of power in the direction we want to go. And I think that's Ron DeSantis. Hmm. Uh, Sam, why don't you go ahead, America first, kind of how do you disagree with anything that Ryan just laid out there? And then- uh, give us the case for Trump within the America First framework. Yeah, so I agree with what Ryan said about um, the left behind Americans. Um, I think of it as a complete and utter prioritization of the people who really are the bedrock of the nation. Um, you know, working class Americans grow the food. They build the stuff here, or at least they used to build the stuff here before we stopped building stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are valid concerns about staffing in the former Trump administration. And I think a lot of those concerns will be remedied moving forward should Trump be the 47th president. Um, But I do understand the concern. Mm. I think it's also imperative to note that the political moment we're in in the conservative movement is entirely because of the mega movement. It's entirely Trump's paradigm that's built around his brand. We're not his personal brand, but his political movement. So, Ryan, let me push you a little bit on uh, DeSantis here. And obviously, like, I don't really have a dog in this fight. (laughs) You guys are on a different team than me. But um, in terms of DeSantis, his legislative track record is very much of that standard conservative. You know, he's many times talked about how he wants to cut Social Security and raise the age. He wants to cut Medicare and, you know, debt in the deficit. And, you know, it was very much in line with sort of the standard views on uh, foreign policy, the kind of John McCain type neocon views on foreign policy. So and even now, it's not like what he's running on is a restoration of the working class. He's running, you know, we're going to make Florida's the place where woke goes to die. And he's fixated more on the cultural side of the conservative spectrum. So what makes you think that he fits with that working class vision that you have? Well, when he was governor, one of the things that he did, Florida is a very expensive state to live in now. There's a lot of people who move there. Um, was he did the hometown heroes law, which is if you're a nurse or if you're a firefighter or a policeman or a teacher and you have to live close to a vicinity of a very expensive place, the state helps pay for your down payment of your house. He suspended sales taxes on baby items for working class mothers. Um, they did a lot of stuff that was towards working class people. Is he running and messaging on it the correct way? No, I'd like him to sit there and see him do more. Um, but I think that the intentions and the conversations that he's having, I think if there's something capable of actually executing that, it's going to be DeSantis more so than than Donald Trump. Well, so that's, Sam, let's talk about the staffing uh, that you were saying. Uh, Ryan and I were quite literally covering it, a lot of it um, at the time. Um, I personally observed, interviewed Trump four separate times. He always seemed to care much more about his own personal issues than really kind of the movement issues that you're talking about. You described it as his movement of not as personal. What makes you think that, given the way that he demands loyalty tests and hiring, you know, his relatives who n- don't necessarily face the- uh, They're ha- Democrats. Hold, who don't They're hold the- They're uh, crystal than they are. Let's just- money, uh, so let's, yeah, I, I, I will let Ryan say that. I'm yeah. not going to say it. Um, but, you know, I think that's a fair criticism. What gives you the confidence that Jared Kushner is not going to come right back into the White House? Ryan's previous won't be uh, the chief of staff again. Why do you have such confidence in a second term rather than what happened in the first term? And we all saw it. So uh, in regard to Jared Kushner, I think he's distanced himself pretty far from this go around mm. um, just for whatever personal reasons. Uh, there's also the whole, you know, punished Trump arc aspect of it. 
um, there's the whole drive for, I don't say revenge, but the, the want for a, um, a comeback type thing. Um, they are, he's surrounding himself, from my understanding, with people who are better able to sniff out the landmines, um, which frankly should have been from the get-go. But being a political outsider, there's a, a bit of naivety with that. Um, so my understanding is that with a healthy dose, dose of skepticism and cynicism, they'll be able to better place their feet than they were the first time around. Ryan, uh, what's your response? Yeah, I what totally disagree with that. I mean, he's Go got ahead. Chris yeah. Disavida, who is his mm. chief political person, the guy who was from Paul Ryan's campaign, and he ran Tony Gonzalez for Congress in Ohio, who voted for impeachment. It's his number one political guy right now. Um, AFPI, American Principal, America whatever the whole AFPI think tank is, they're gonna staff the White House. They were created from Jared Kushner's number two uh, in, the, in the White House. So it's all Jared Kushner people left and right. And Trump's demand for a, an arc, for a redemption, is not that he's gonna finally give in to his base, it's gonna you know, finally earn love from the media. That's who he's really appealing to. I mean, Trump would much more care about a he positive headline from Maggie Haberman than from the Daytona Weekly. And like, that's just the truth. So when he gets in there, I mean, what, he was, what was he working on right before he left office? An amnesty. There's no evidence whatsoever that he wouldn't just do that because he's finally gonna get the love from the media. Morning Joe will have a great segment on him saying, wow, Donald Trump, he he finally did it. He'll, he'll get all the love he finally wants from the people who hate him the most, which is all he craves. And there's that sociopathic cynicism uh, that he just can't help himself. He can't control his, his fingers on Truth Social. He can't control his mouth in public. There's no evidence whatsoever he's gonna be able to control anything. And you know, and Jared will be going to foreign countries, probably bribing them for more money, like he did with the Qataris and the Saudis. So, like, he's Hunter Biden without the kids and the hookers. Like that is basically what you're looking at with the Trump family. And there's only so much more that we could sit there and say, no, this time he's going to get it right. He's 77 now. That's the magic number. What do you say, Sam? I mean, I, I totally understand the cynicism. Yeah. Um, but I would just highlight that I don't. I mean, not to you know bring the personal personalities into it. I don't see how a any Republican administration would be able to avoid any landmines put by bureaucrats or the deep state or whatever. I just don't see how a DeSantis well, administration could better that, sniff things out. That actually kind of gets to the question I wanted to ask both of you guys, which is, I, it's hard for me to see why you have any faith in either one of these guys to actually deliver for the working class. When, you know, we've seen post-Trump, first of all, Trump's major accomplishment in office is a giant tax break to, like, the wealthiest Americans overwhelmingly. Well, he let right? criminals out of prison, too. Don't forget that. That was the <laughs> second biggest one. I support criminal justice reform, yeah. but I know you have a different position on that. But, I mean, He's that's, not wrong, that's, his big, <laughs> yeah, like, that's his biggest accomplishment in office yeah. is a giant tax cut. Why? Because that's all the infrastructure that backs the Republican Party. You know, they had that tax cut. He's incompetent, but they had that tax cut locked and loaded, ready to go. And those are the, still the institutions that run the Republican Party. And you see it with, you know, the current House Republican caucus. Yeah, they were sort of shamed into claiming, oh, we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. I see a headline today. They're plotting like, okay, well, how can we actually cut Social Security and Medicare? The Elites in the Republican Party have not changed. Ron DeSantis is backed by those elites. I mean, his, you know, he's very, it's very much a donor play um, from Ron DeSantis. Trump has more grassroots-based support, but there's no track record for him actually delivering on any of the things that might help working class people. So it's just not clear to me why you would think either of these people would deliver. But if it was a donor play, uh, DeSantis would not have done E-Verify. The donors were screaming, don't do mm -hmm. it. They wouldn't have done the pro-life thing. The yeah, but look at how he folded on Ukraine. 
right? I mean, he that got was, pushed back on Ukraine not, and he flip-flopped and he was uncomfortable. Policy, but that wasn't but that, was, that clearly was pressure from the donor. Just look where he gets his money. I mean, that's why I'm saying it's a donor play. It's just, listen, we all know how Washington works, right? I get it. You know that those are the people whose calls he will take. Those are the people who's going to be Well, he doesn't make anyone's by. calls, which they complain he's about not constantly. Even, he's not even running on the things that you want him to run on. So what makes you think that he's going to, like... But I don't run his PR. But what makes you think that... If you're not even, if you run on it, there's like a small chance you might do it when you're off. You're not even talking about it. Like, it's not going to happen. Okay. There are three <laughs> things that the donor said don't do this year. Disney, he did it. E-Verify, he did it. Abortion, he did it. So what evidence is there that he's going to kowtow to the donors? And Nikki Haley's criticism to him was, you got money from them. How could you possibly hurt them? Mm -hmm. Come to South Carolina, Disney. That was her little, like, how dare you defy the donors? That's her attack. So if, it's, if he's bow, bowing to the donors, he's doing a bad job I, of that. That's it. a fair point. Uh, he's, he's, he's kicked on some of their stuff. Crystal's right that he did fold a little bit on Ukraine, um, Wait, which was different. He doesn't have a very, very well thought out policy, and he said point blank, I, "It might be over by the time I right. become president." So I, that, you know, well, we hope why. so. Uh, unlikely, so. unfortunately. So, given that though, Ryan, um, in terms of the donor support, it is on you know Ken Griffin, many of the other elites, the billionaires in the Republican Party, they do support Ron DeSantis. How do, do you, why do you have confidence that he will be better able to kick their influence than Trump did? If you look at what donors have said about him, it's the constant. He doesn't take our phone calls. Mm -hmm. He does. That's what. Um, the billionaire from New York, the Greek guy. He's like, I'm not yeah. giving to him because he doesn't take my phone calls. He right. doesn't return my phone calls. It's a constant complaint about him. He's not personable. He doesn't show up at my events. This event. is the thing about him being like socially awkward, basically. But it's not socially awkward. I mean, it's not like, what Well, it that's the accusation. From? I don't know. I've yeah. met him. It wasn't yeah. that socially awkward. I know people way mm. worse. Um, but <laughs> go to the streets of Washington. <laughs> yeah. but they're they are, running for president. Well, yes, that's true. But he, it's not that it's not social. It's that he's not owned by them. And if he was... I mean, E-Verify is one of the hardest things you could do in Florida between the agricultural lobby, the tourism lobby, and um, and the and construction industry. And he still managed to do it. And they were all pressuring him and the Florida GOP. And he did it. And he was like, no, you can't have illegals stealing jobs from American workers. And he got, I mean, it got passed amazingly because I didn't think it was going to. Right. So, uh, Sam, I think that's also a fair point, though, is that while Trump was in office, Steve Schwartzman's on the phone. Rupert Murdoch's on the phone. He loved getting the praise from right. all of the donor class Like while he was there. I actually personally witnessed it uh, whenever some of these guys were there and the way he would suck up to them, the Fortune 500 CEOs. Why do you have confidence that's not going to happen this time around? Oh, I want to push back on something real quick. Sure. Uh, I yeah. think a, um, a major um, reason why DeSantis was able to accomplish a very successful and great legislative agenda was because he had a, co a um, very ideologically aligned uh, Florida legislature. There's no guarantee that success would uh, translate over to to Congress. Mm. Um, that success was able to be achieved because Florida was aligned with him and coalesced around him. I am very skeptical that success could be achieved at the national level. I hope it could, but I don't think it would be as smooth as butter as it was in Florida. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. true. But yeah. what you could do is you could do a Schedule F and start firing people who are bureaucrats. There's things an executive actually can do that can fire bureaucrats. They can move agencies to different locations and let the bureaucrats not want to go to the middle of Omaha or wherever For sure, for sure. And that's what Trump did for that one, I think was Interior or yeah, I think something. It was BLM, B the Bureau of Land Management. But yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. He moved them out of DC and right. people did not apply for their job again. Mm. That, I mean, there's things that you could sit there and do as the executive. You could do schedule, there's a couple schedules you could do to sit there and get rid of bureaucrats who defy you and hold you back. That's totally possible. Is it possible to get every legislative agenda through with you know a 60 vote threshold? Probably not. But 
with the, a lot of the issues that I care about, immigration, trade, uh, foreign policy, you don't need Congress. Let me just, right. uh, the, the last thing, Ryan, on this part, and then I will move to the, the horse race part and look mm -hmm. at the polls and all that yeah. good stuff. Um, but I guess, Ryan, when I look at DeSantis and try to take my own like ideological view out of it, I just see a guy who's trying to find the spot for like, he's twisting in the wind. I mean, when it was cool to be a Reagan conservative and a neocon, that's what he was. Now he sees the rise of Trump. He's like, ah, that's that's the thing I need to get in on. So let me try to be that thing. And let me try to copycat Trump and even his like mannerisms and whatever he would try to copy rhetorically. <laughs> okay. And so what gives you confidence that if, you know, the worm turns a little bit more and some of the issues that you care about fall out of fashion again and he's under pressure from whoever, from the public, et cetera, that there's actually a core ideological commitment to any of this? Well, a lot of people try to be like Trump after 2016. And what they thought being Trump was, was being an asshole on social media and being loud and abrasive and still voting for tax cuts and that's it. Like the MAGA Inc brand mm -hmm. that the, some of the worst politicians in the country have on them yeah. is literally just Bushism with a different bumper sticker. What I, and a lot of governors do the same thing too. DeSantis didn't do that. DeSantis really reformed education. It wasn't just about black and school choice and don't worry about it and whatever. He got into the policy weeds. I did. I do my school board elections. I have done over 300 nationwide. The only two elected officials have ever called me to ask me about it. And one was DeSantis. He was the first one. Hmm. So he really does care about process and in-depth things. And he does not have to go as far as he has. When did we ever think as in the 2000s that Florida would be considered the free state and Texas wouldn't? Yeah. That's no, a that's massive change under one person's administration and only one person that's run this. Sam, I want to actually give you a similar version of that, mm -hmm. which is with Trump. You know, uh, like we said, we've all had experience with Trump. We've watched him change his mind constantly, uh, both on the chorus issues to Republicans, uh, from like Reaganite Republicans, but also even on trade, on many of these immigration, any of these issues, amnesty, considering that. Why do you have confidence that this man will actually do even some of what you want him to do when he's in office, when we already had four years? We didn't accomplish much of it. it was it wasn't just staff. Much of it was also up to him personally. Oh, I think on trade in particular, mm -hmm. on, in particular, it was one of the more consistent aspects. Um, I think that's really his strong suit is the economic populism. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why so many working class Americans are, are uh, hopeful because of him. He actually represents, at least culturally, what they need, what they yearn for. Um, you know, there is no, obviously, no guarantee in anything in politics. I'm not going to bet the house on anything. Yeah. But I think there is... Um, no, that is his strength, is going to war for the economic populism. Um, we got the um, USMC trade deal out of him. True. And that renegotiated NAFTA, which gutted the Midwest. Um, I think that's a major reason to be optimistic for a future Trump administration. All right, let's turn to the politics and uh, control room. I actually want to start with, I think it's the third element, uh, showing Trump's losses in the midterms and how his candidates struggled. Um, because for any of this to matter— your guy's got to be able to win an election. And one of the cases that the DeSantis team is trying to make is like, well, listen, we are the, we don't have all of this ingrained hatred of more than half the country against us. We think we could win back some of the suburban voters or whoever it is that we want back in the coalition. So we are a better bet for the fall. And in fact, there is some evidence of that, given the fact that in the midterms, the Trump-backed candidates performed very poorly. The candidates who were, you know, the most in on Stop the Steal, that appeared to be a real 
Ariel Albatross. And on the other hand, Ron DeSantis won in Florida, which not so long ago was a swing state, and he won really easily. And actually, all Florida Republicans did quite well. It was a, quite a standout, as opposed to the rest of the country. Um, so what makes you think that your guy, as he's facing multiple indictments and all of this other chaos that constantly swirls around him and makes a whole lot of people hate him, what makes you think he could even make it back to the White House? Uh, well, I mean, the midterms were very disappointing. I don't think anybody would deny that. Um, I don't think it's necessarily because of Trump himself. I think a lot of it is the political environment we were in. Um, you know, you did have people who campaigned way too heavily on Stop the Steal, on It Was Stolen, things like that. Yeah. And I do think Trump threw punches he shouldn't have thrown. Like, I think it was Dan Bodock in um, uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, yeah. yes, thank you. Mm. Um, that was a fight that was totally unnecessary. Um, but, you know, that's just how things shook out. Um, in the case of Arizona, uh, you know, there was there were funding issues and general campaigning issues. In Michigan, there was the um, abortion ballot referendum that really boosted Gretchen Whitmer and hurt mm -hmm. Tudor Dixon. Yeah. Um, and then there were just, you know, quirky personalities on ballots across the country. Um, I think... Quirky is a good word. Yeah. But. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a little too many memes on the official campaign pages. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I think... The culture is a big driver for Trump. Mm -hmm. um, I think people are increasingly less motivated by actual nuanced political issues. I think they're more motivated by- It's all vibes. Yeah, by vibes. No, it's I vibes think you're shit. right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, um, I actually agree. There, there's um, a reason why he got a boost after the indictment. Mm -hmm. After every single negative news cycle, well, he got a boost in the Republican primary. Right. Yeah. With so the general far, electorate, right. it's, I think, yet. a very, very right. different deal. Right. Yeah. Ryan, I see you, you want to what jump was in the, the question. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no, it was just, no, no, no. It was just I, uh, I, I think on the DeSantis front is, I do think that his his strongest case, at least to somebody like me, he's like, I'm a winner. He's like, you can call me whatever you want. But as you just said, he won Florida by 20 points. That's insane. Well, like, within our political life. It's not just lifetime. that he won Florida by 20 yeah. points. He has never, in his entire political career, ever underperformed an election cycle. Mm. So when the state, when the nation was a D plus eight right, way year in 2018, sure. he won by less than one. All right. In his congressional runs, he always outperformed the nation. As so a let's poll. talk to you about the primary. Let's go ahead and put the poll up on the screen of where first things element. stand today. That's the first element. Um, Donald Trump at 59%. Um, and this is with the broader field, but it you know still has him up over 50%. Ron DeSantis at 19%. This is according to Morning Consult. Listen, the polls, you know, they're take them with a grain of salt. But consistently, the polls show Trump at this point with quite a sizable lead. In fact, the polling looks pretty close to Biden versus RFK Jr. at this point in terms of where Ron DeSantis stands. Um, so one of the things we've talked about here is when Trump gets indicted, as Sam just point, pointed out, it really seems to harden and coalesce the Republican Party around him. You know, they see him as under threat. They want to rally to his side. He sucks up all the media oxygen. DeSantis is put in an impossible position of basically having to like, you know, bend the knee to him on the indictment stuff and make it even more about him. So how do you actually win over the Republican Party and decide and uh, and convince the base that they should want to move on from someone who they still really love and admire? Well, the polls show that DeSantis is not negatively viewed. He's very favorably sure. viewed and he is yes. as everyone's second choice. Um, I think that the electorate on both sides of the aisle is very reactionary. Mm. They love who the media tells them to hate. Mm -hmm. And it is 
they're not telling them to hate DeSantis anymore. Mm. And that I think part of it. And also time has healed the wounds of Trump's losing in 2022 so badly. Yeah. People have just kind of forgotten. Oh, yeah. He nominated that insane man in Pennsylvania who said <laughs> we should imprison women <laughs> who want to get abortions and kick everyone off the voting rolls. That was the plan. It was like, <laughs> we're going to clear the whole voter rolls. Yeah. And we nominated that... <laughs> Crazy lady who vacuumed for him in in Arizona. Yeah, that's and serving like, leadership, Ryan. Uh, yeah, yeah, and like I mean, and I didn't even see Carrie like vacuumed for him. She Before he walked yeah. on, she personally vacuumed. I don't know how I missed this. Oh, it's just and he just nominated the Wisconsin guy who was like drooling from the mouth, and the lady, the 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 lady ran for Secretary of State of Alabama, who's now running this uh, Michigan rather, who's now running the state party, mm-hmm. and she's completely insane. And yeah, these all everyone's forgotten. Like, oh yeah, he lost, and he lost bad, and he lost all these people. And every state that he lost in 2020, all of his candidates lost, with the exception of the lieutenant governor of Georgia. Herschel Walker didn't even want to run for office. He was like, yeah, I'll do it, I guess. I mean, I got nothing going on on Wednesday. That's literally the team that he assembled. Um, So I think that we have to—I think DeSantis should be taking more adversary interviews. So how would you—I— I think he has to because yes. he has to take risks. Yes. What do you think of like how he's handled the indict? How would you advise him to handle these indictments? Because I do think it creates sort of an impossible situation for them because so much of the media focuses on it. It does. I agree with you. The base response to like the media hates this guy, so we love him. Um, and you know, not only does it suck up the oxygen, but if you're trying to defeat this person, but you're spending a lot of time having to bolster what they're, the arguments that they're making, how do you get out of that box? Well, I think the problem with the, ind- well, this indictment, the one in Florida is much different than the one in New York. The yes. New York one is a complete nonsense joke, but the one in Florida is very serious. It's much ser- more serious, Paragraph sure. 60 to 62 and 30 to 34 of the indictment is literally, I don't know how he's gonna get out of it. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, having said that, I think that the one thing you said, people are mad at the indictment, not because they think Trump is a, you know, a Boy Scout and he's so honorable and wouldn't do this. Right. It's that, why isn't Hillary Clinton in jail? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what frustrates them. Right. I mean, DeSantis should sit there inside, would press the FBI, the, the, my, the, the intelligence, not the intelligence, the, um, uh, FBI. my FBI and my, uh, yeah, and my DOJ to reinvestigate Hillary Clinton breaking up information with hammers mm-hmm. and also looking into Joe and Hunter Biden. If there was an equal level of justice, people would not be this upset. I think you're right, Ryan. Uh, So let's talk, though, Sam, my last thing on politics of it. The indictment is a problem, as as Ryan said. I mean, you lay it out. And look, both of us, we're very critical of the Manhattan indictment, looking at all this, being like, listen, this is BS, especially when you compare it to Florida and with the classified documents case. In the general election, we have to admit, there is still a lot of faith in, you know, the rule of law. And, you know, when somebody's indicted, they're like, oh, my gosh, he's, you know, an alleged felon, all this. How can Trump politically get past this specter, as we pointed out previously? It's about movement. It shouldn't be about him. But almost all of the coverage is about him and his personal issues. Right. How does he get past that to a general election, to the suburban voters who he actually lost in 2020 and were ultimately the reason why he lost the election? Um, I think it's going to rely on alternative media, frankly. Mm. I think it's going to rely on the internet, um, because obviously corporate media isn't going to cover it. 
Um, it's it's not gonna you're not gonna hear anything about you know actual policy from CNN or MSNBC. Yeah, look, no no arguments here. <laughs> right. uh, but they exist, right? And a lot of people watch. A lot of boomers specifically watch right. them, and those are the people who vote. And so you know, for those people, you know, the people who I forget what the district is called. The things like Omaha, Nebraska, two or something like that, oh, wow. um, which uh, Trump ended up losing in 2020. I mean, there was, these were big stunners because these were people who otherwise were also voting for Republican. They were like Mitt Romney type Republicans who were willing to vote and cross for Biden for the first time in their lives. That, those people, they get pissed off about Can I just say one thing? Oh, yeah. From 2010 to 2016, yeah. Republicans won the independent vote in every single election, and they have not won it since 2016. Hmm. Part of the reason Trump won was because America truly hated Hillary Clinton. Yes. And we have to just admit that that is part of it. Yes. Right. Um, they do not hate Biden the same. They think that he's too old. They think that he is too inefficient. They think that he is probably senile, and they have absolutely no love for Kamala Harris at all. She is you know, black Asian Hillary. Mm -hmm. So that is... Um, hey, she's not... Anyway, what, we, don't, we, don't, we don't accept her. Whatever. Is, what depending on the day of the week, yeah. she's black or Asian. Yeah. So she's black Asian Hillary. And that is problematic. And if the election is about Joe Biden, he is not going to win re-election. The only person who could take the attention away from Joe Biden is Donald Trump. Mm. I think... Um, kind of circle back a little bit, I think a way for DeSantis to majorly boost himself in the polls would be to... You know, offer a hypothetical pardon should Trump end up. He's already uh, done that. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He has said that. Yeah, he said I, I will pardon Trump from this. And uh. I mean, if we're going to give everyone the Richard Nixon right. status quo and say every president's not going to go to jail, we're not going to be like other countries, even first world countries where presidents go to jail. Right. Um, then that's then that's right. the standard. Then everyone just that's just like, get out of jail free. Card we don't. President. We haven't seen. At least I, I don't believe we've seen the ceiling of DeSantis's polling. It's still very early on, and. <laughs> Uh, you know this this uh, morning consult consult poll yeah. consult geez uh, said this was near the bottom of where he was pulling since it started tracking. Yeah. So the ceiling I think is far from being reached, and it's still very early on. So okay. it'd be interesting to see what happens. Well, I think that's fair, and and this kind of gets Ryan. My last question to you: Let's can we throw the second element up there, guys? Please on the screen where they were talking about how whether DeSantis is the wine track candidate or not. What they get to here, and it's actually an intelligent point, Ryan, is that so far the vast majority of DeSantis support, or really of non-Trump support generally, comes from college-educated Republicans who yeah. are much more likely to vote for Romney. So as someone who has worked on the side of wanting to push the Republican Party in a more working-class direction, you don't work for the DeSantis campaign. What would your advice to them be? How do, how do they make sure that they don't have a wine track? I would say stop problem? talking about Florida so much. Interesting. I'm so tired of hearing about Florida. I make really America am. Florida, right? I don't want yeah. to move. Listen, yeah. if, if I was going to move there, yeah, it's a great tourism yeah. uh, ad to sit there and say how free Florida is, how DEI is dying in Florida, right. whatever the case is. I need a big national vision. It mm. wasn't in his book. It wasn't in his campaign thus far. Uh, you need to sit there and say, what are you going to do? You can't plant palm trees in Michigan. That's just not a possibility. Right. So what are you going to do for the rest of the country that doesn't want to live in Florida, the other 49 states? That has not been articulated that as, as well. And that vision has to include the fact that certain things have happened in the last eight years, including under Trump's president in four years. Uh, violent crime up third for 30 years highs. Fentanyl deaths up 30 years highs. The cartel is still not being taken care of. Mm. The wall was never built. All these big things that are really part of both 
I mean, even Biden has now taken up a lot of, you know, Trump That's stuff, true. which is yes. like infrastructure, or whatever. But a lot of those jobs, they're not going back to those places in uh, eastern Ohio or western Pennsylvania or northern Michigan. Right. Those towns are still decaying. They're going to, you know, it's Atlanta. Sun, it's on uh, you yeah. know, exactly. So yeah. it's got to be some place, something different like that. And Sam, similar question to you to close things out here. You know, if you were to give advice to the Trump campaign about, yeah, they're they're in pretty strong position in terms of the primary. But how do you take the edge off for a general election so that you got a shot at winning the Electoral College, at least ideally winning the popular vote, when you have a motion so hardened against him? Um, kind of like what Ryan said, I think focusing on, focusing on a national vision is imperative. Um, you know, there's the Agenda 47 videos that, if, that he's been putting out that I think are pretty uh, fascinating. They're pretty optimistic. Mm. Um, some of the things like flying cars I don't think are quite <laughs> achievable, per se. Uh, but I think there's a lot of reason for hope in those videos. He uh, is painting a vision for restoration, for renewal. Okay. Um, I think giving people a reason to hope is part of the part of Trump's major appeal. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's, it's vibes necessarily, not policy nuance. Mm. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why he was such a, a um, attractive alternative to Hillary uh, in 2016. And I think continuing to juxtapose himself to decay, to such aggressive decay, and presenting himself as you know the golden tower of renewal hopefully not a Tower of Babel, um, would be a great opportunity to do so. Okay. Yeah. Well, guys, we really appreciate you joining yeah. us. Thank yeah, you both. Thanks for coming in the studio. Super appreciative um, to both of you guys right. for coming in and um, really appreciate both your contributions. Yeah. Welcome back Fantastic. on the show anytime. Thank and you. Uh, I think the audience enjoyed uh, the panel return. All right. That is it for us today here on Breaking Points. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Breakingpoints.com if you want to go ahead and help us out. Otherwise, we will see you all next week. Love y'all. See you next week. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translate is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. And the all-new Beauty Translated love line at 678-561-2785. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye! Hey, I'm Bruce Bozzi. On the last season of Table for Two, we had some good times with some of the best guests you could possibly ask for. Table for Two is a bit different from other interview shows. We sit down at a great restaurant for a meal, and the stories start flowing. We're back for a second season. We'll be breaking bread with Colin Jost, Michael Mann, Divine Joy Randolph, just to name a few. Listen and subscribe to Table for Two on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.